Nicely done. That's very impressive. What's that? Can you feel the You're right. Is, is, that, is, that, is that? What's that? Right, but no, the circle of life song really is at the heart of the whole worldview of Lion King. Listen to just a couple of lines from the song, The Circle of Life. All right, I'm right. Here we go. It's the circle of life. And it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle, the circle of life. So there's this idea in The Lion King, I don't know if you remember, that that life is circular. It's cyclical. And the question of death actually comes up in the movie, and The big question is, what happens when we die? And the big hopeful response is the circle of life. You see, you die, and then you end up in the ground, and you provide fertilizer for more grass, and the next animal comes along and eats that grass that you provided for and gets life from it, and on and on it goes. Isn't that great? No. It's horrible. You're telling me I'm supposed to be happy and sing a hopeful song about becoming fertilizer. I mean, what a terrible view of things. But I hope you realize that the the view of life in the Bible, the view of human history, the view of your history is not a circle. It's not cyclical. It's linear. Remember geography, uh, geometry, right? Uh, It's linear, right? It's it's heading in a particular direction toward a particular goal. And the Bible's really importantly emphasizing this throughout the whole Bible, that, that history is heading in a direction toward a goal. And listen to the goal it's heading toward. Listen to Hebrews 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you hear how different that is than some circular idea, cyclical idea? And there are all these ideas that are invading our culture all the time that get you out of the mentality that gives you an urgency to life. And what you do with this life. Think of all these ideas going on all the time now. This idea that reincarnation or karma or evolution, endless time, is what people are thinking about more and more. I hear it all the time. Is that karma or what? Instant karma. You can find all these these things online, right? This idea of karma that I hear even Christians referring to all the time is actually A brilliantly thought up lie, I believe, by the powers of darkness and Satan himself to get us to disengage from the importance and urgency of what you do in this life with however many days you have in this life. If you can get human beings to disconnect from a sense of thinking that what you do today may have implications for heaven or hell or life or death, eternity, and how you spend it. If you can get people to think it's all just about the here or now, 
then, then you're going to get people to disengage from what God calls us to, and that is thinking about life that's actually heading somewhere. Listen to Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I know it's kind of viewed these days a little bit as old-fashioned to tell people judgment days coming. And very often even Christian messages get us thinking mostly about just today. But throughout the Bible, there is a profoundly important message that human history is heading toward a day called Judgment Day, where we will all have to answer to God for how we lived our lives. This is a massive theme throughout the entire Bible, a universal final judgment where everyone will stand before their creator and answer to him. Let's listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has, he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Listen to Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Wow. Who do you answer to? Do you have a judge in the world? Do you have someone that you answer to besides yourself? I know we all have authority figures, you know, parents and teachers and coaches and pastors, but at the end of it all, do you have a sense that you will answer one day for the way you have lived your life to the God who made you in the first place and knows better than anyone else what your life is intended to look like and be for? This idea that we're, we're heading toward judgment, that you don't hear it that much anymore. It, it's kind of like, oh, you don't want to talk about hellfire and brimstone and judgment day. You know, you get these cartoons of this guy walking around with a sign that's saying the end is near. and You, you almost mock that sort of thing. You know, I took my daughter to New York City for her 16th birthday. She loves musicals. And so I took Caroline to... to New York City, and we went to a Broadway uh, musical. And we're walking around Times Square. Has anyone been to Times Square? Whoa, you guys get around. The West Coasters getting, a, yeah, you all go on high school trips or something, yeah. Well, so if you've been to Times Square, especially at night, you know that it's got all this glitz and glamour and beauty, but it's also sort of like humanity's throwing up on you. I mean, I was there with my 16-year-old daughter, and you see these incredibly beautiful things and art and musicians, and you see the worst of humanity, too. You see prostitution, and you see drug deals going down, and you, you see strip clubs, and you see people sleeping in the gutter, smelling of their own urine, and the whole time, I'm with my daughter saying, Caroline, look at that. Caroline, don't look at that, and I just kept going back and forth in this. It was really tough to be a dad of a 16-year-old girl in Times Square at night, and so there's all this sin and evil all over the place, and we walk by this guy. Really good-looking African-American guy, probably early 20s. 
had a suit on. And he had his Bible open. And he's intelligently and articulately and powerfully preaching the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I stopped and I listened and I smiled and I gave him a thumbs up and he gave me a thumbs up and we passed by and I said, Caroline, isn't that great that that brother's preaching the gospel like that here in Times Square? Well, about 15 or 20 minutes, we walked by again with all this sin and evil everywhere. And this time, there are two guys this far from this man's face screaming at Telling him how hateful he is and how horrible he is and what a bigot he is. That he's preaching the need for repentance and faith in Christ. So on judgment day, you can stand before your creator. And this guy couldn't have been more courageous. He was just standing there saying, I'm just telling you what Jesus told me to say. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm giving you the answer to the biggest problem of life. And he wasn't budging. And I thought, Caroline, isn't it amazing? And I said to her, isn't it amazing that in the midst of drug deals going down and sexual immorality everywhere and all of this human folly and foolishness, the one guy here preaching the truth of God is the one people are screaming at. What does it mean for us to take God's word seriously? This message of Jonah is so important for us. Even if you were raised in a Christian family, going to church your whole life, even if you know a lot of the things you're supposed to do and are doing a lot of them, it's so important that you have internalized the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a life-transforming way. Do you know the problem with demons is not that they have wrong thinking? You know, there are these scenes in the Bible, have you ever seen them, where the apostles are with Jesus, and a demon understands who Jesus is better than his apostles do. You know the scenes I'm talking about? Where they're with Jesus, and the demon says to him, I know who you are, son of God. The Bible even says the demons believe there's one God, and they shudder. But the problem is, They have an intellectual understanding that's accurate, but it doesn't lead to a transformed heart that becomes a worshiper of God, that fears the Lord and loves and adores Him above all else, where He now is everything to you and everything else is on the periphery. Even the most important things in life are now peripheral compared with God at the center of everything. See, that's what Jonah's needing to get a grip on. If if you'd open your Bibles to Jonah again, we're going to look at chapter 3 tonight. This, This amazing scene where Jonah finally does what God tells him to. We'll see, especially tomorrow. And tonight, that that he doesn't love what he's doing. He still hasn't been gripped by the gospel of grace, the good news of repentance that's available. And so Jonah finally does what God wants, but he does it begrudgingly, as we've seen in these excellent skits. Here we go. You ready? Jonah chapter 3. Help us, Lord, as we go to your word. Jonah 3, 1. And I just want to say, I'm not sure I've ever preached to a more mature, attentive, respectful, hungry-to-learn group of young people in my life. I'm serious. I could not be more grateful and impressed with you. I, every, 
every time I teach high school students, I feel like I'm herding cats. And I'm trying to, no, don't go away. Oh, you're just messing around in the back. And these are all asleep. And you are an amazing group of young people. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for making me feel so encouraged to preach. I'm sure it's your leaders who have just set the stage and prepared the soil in, in this kind of important, attentive preaching that you're, you're, provide, you're, you're getting. So, so thank you so much. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I pre- yes, I'm going to applaud you. Thank you. And thank you, leaders, for whatever you're doing to raise up a group of young people who are sitting there like they actually want to be here and hear from God's word. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. But all right, here we go. You ready? Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, now watch how similar verse 2 is to verse 2 of chapter 1. Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out or proclaim or preach against it. So it's a message of confrontation. It's not a feel-good message. It's a rebuke. It's a confrontation. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Not what you may want to say to them, but the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, finally. He finally gets there after God makes sure he gets there through these miraculous circumstances of the storm and the ship and the fish. And here he is finally. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We we started off by saying the important thing is to listen to God. Because he's actually spoken. We believe God has spoken. We're not limited to our little finite, limited perspective. God, the creator of the universe, has spoken to us in his word. And so we listen, and then we live according to his word. And that's what he's telling Jonah to do. And he finally does it. He goes according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, and here's his sermon. It's fascinating in how brief it is. I actually think the brevity is a sign that Jonah doesn't love preaching this message of repentance. I mean, what's Jonah's big problem? It's the problem of grace. Look what he says to him. It's just five Hebrew words. His whole message after all this to Nineveh is five Hebrew words. And here's how it's translated in English. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's his sermon. Don't you wish my sermons were that short? Uh, No, there it is. That's his message. He's saying, repent or perish. God's going to judge you. Now, what's fascinating is this word overthrown, is is overturned. And Jonah is clearly, and the people clearly hear a word of judgment. But there are actually two kinds of uh, turning over that could happen here. One is a being overturned in judgment. Another is what actually happens. They're overturned in repentance. And they start a new course. 
And Jonah begrudgingly preaches this message as tersely and concisely and briefly as he can, almost apparently wishing they won't repent because he hates their guts. No, he's got reason. As we said, this is a wicked people, an oppressive people, an evil people, as we keep seeing here. But God's gracious, and he tells Jonah to represent him in that message of grace. And he goes, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? If you had to think about what the biggest problems people have with the Christian view of God and the gospel, it's, it's that he judges sin. It's that he's wrathful towards sin. And, and we say, you know, why would, why would God judge people? And people even say to me, I could never worship a God that would ever send anybody to hell. I could never worship a God who judges like that. It's just amazing to me that that's how people think. But do you know in the Bible, the problem isn't that God judges. The problem is he doesn't do it sooner. And he doesn't do it more often and more severely. I mean, as you listen to godly people throughout the Bible, they're like, God, what's, it's never, God, what's your problem? Why are you judging sin? It's always, what are you waiting for? Why are you waiting so long? And I really think one of the reasons we might have a problem with a God who judges sin and evil is because in our culture relative to other places in the world and actually throughout human history, we've been really preserved from real serious injustice. Imagine being a first century Christian where persecution was intense and martyrdom was common. I mean, imagine if your pastor, think of your pastor, maybe think of your youth pastor or your youth leader. Imagine if your pastor or youth pastor or youth leader, one day, because she was a Christian, was taken out of her home and killed for her faith. That's what a lot of Christians in the world right now and in the history of the world have experienced. Do you know how often in the Bible judgment and divine justice and judgment day is taught in the context of helping Christians be patient in the midst of persecution? Saying, it's okay, God will judge. I know this world is filled with injustice, but take heart. God, the judge of all the earth, will make all things right one day. Just be patient. It's okay. I think it's indicative of the culture that we live in that has not experienced the kind of injustice and persecution and martyrdom that Christians throughout the history of the church have. Read the New Testament, how often judgment is talked about in the context of getting Christians to just be at peace, trusting that one day God will make all things right. You know, I taught at a seminary in India, in, in Delhi, and there are only about 60 students at this seminary. And I'm teaching at this seminary. And during one of the breaks, I got talking to the headmaster of this seminary in Delhi, India. And he told me, he said, in the last five years, he said, we haven't had a lot of graduates. But in the last five years, eight of our graduates have been murdered for their faith. Eight graduates. In this small seminary, can you imagine how that would shape your perspective, sitting in a classroom, getting ready to be ministers of the gospel? See, judgment is a good thing. Don't you love that God hates sin and evil? Don't you hate sin and evil? And if you don't 
hate sin and evil, you are not someone who loves. Look, if you love children, don't you hate child abuse? If you love truth, don't you hate lies? If you, hate, if you love justice, don't you hate injustice? You see, you can't be for good things if you're not opposed to the bad things that are the opposite of those things. You have a sense of justice, don't you? Even when petty wrongs are done to you, you can have this great indignation. How about a perfectly holy God? How about a perfectly just God who looks at sinners who are rebelling against him and doing great evil in this world? How do you think he feels about it? You see, justice is right. When he says the Ninevites are evil... He knows what he's talking about, and there is good and evil. He knows the difference, but the problem is we don't know the difference. The Bible says you need to have your senses of discernment trained to be even tell the, able to tell the difference between good and evil. And not only can we not tell the difference, you know what eventually ends up happening if we don't train ourselves to know the difference according to the word of God? We start calling good evil and evil good. And that's exactly what's happening in our culture. Those who fight for evil are considered good these days. And those who fight for goodness are considered evil. And more and more, I'm longing, and I hope you are longing for the judge of all the earth to make all things right. And that's the message of judgment. And the message of judgment is right. And just like the, the, the pagan sea captain and his crew, and the king and in the nobles now in this scene... They all realize that all of their pious actions and prayers can never merit or guarantee divine forgiveness. God is under no obligation to forgive. And so judgment is right and judgment is good. And watch their response. He preaches this message and Nineveh repents. Watch. And the people of Nineveh believe God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So they fasted. They, they, they put aside their daily nourishment to put things in perspective. They put on this clothing that is a symbol of mourning in our own frailty. And they start to repent before God. Even the king. The word reached, verse 6, the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. These symbols of poverty of spirit, of contrition, of being sorry for your sin. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither men nor beasts, they get the animals involved. How wild is that? Herd nor flock taste anything, so they're making the animals refrain from eating as well. To make a point, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Isn't that interesting? They even make the animals take on these symbols of repentance. Isn't that odd? It is, it is a bit odd, isn't it? But if you think about it, uh, have you ever seen the funeral of a president? I remember watching Ronald Reagan's funeral, and there were horses. He loved horses, and he rode horses his whole life. At Ronald Reagan's funeral, there were horses in, in the funeral procession, and they covered the horses with, with black sheets as a symbol of even the animals being part of this mourning. And so it, it's not as strange as it may seem. Here you have the whole 
the, the whole city repenting, including symbolically the animals. And here's what the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Don't you love that? The, they went from being unaware of their guilt, unaware of their sin, unaware of their need for repentance, and now they've moved to, to saying, who knows? Maybe there's a chance he'll forgive us. Maybe there's a chance he won't judge us for our sin and punish us for our sin and turn us upside down like Jonah said he will. Maybe there's a chance. See, no presumption on his grace, no, no assuming, no cheap grace here, but saying maybe there's a chance God will forgive us. And, and so they don't presume upon it. And what happens? Watch. When God saw what they did, verse 10, how they turned from their evil way, oh, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God is the judge of all the earth, but you know what else is true? God is amazingly merciful, amazingly gracious, amazingly compassionate. Listen to what Ezekiel 18.32 says. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Oh, Jonah and God agree. Nineveh is a wicked city. It deserves judgment. He says, arise, go to that great city and cry against it. And they both understand that God saves rebels miraculously. And this is what Jonah doesn't like. I mean, do you realize what Jonah keeps saying? He's like the prodigal son, if you know that story. He's like his older brother. The prodigal son's older brother doesn't want the father to forgive the son who's come home after rebelling. He wants him to earn it. He wants him to prove it. And the father's gracious. And that's Jonah. He says, oh, no, I don't want to go to Nineveh because I know you. And although they deserve judgment, I know you, God. And I know if I go and preach repentance and they repent, you know what you're going to do? You're going to forgive them. You're not going to judge them. And I want them to be judged. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy. Even after Jonah in chapter 2 cries out this amazing declaration of God's grace toward him, he doesn't want it to extend to the Ninevites. He thinks he deserves it. And so the only way we can interpret it, and we'll clearly see this in chapter 4 tomorrow night, the only way we can interpret this is he understands the grace of God, but with an underlying self-righteousness. See, if you think you deserve grace, you don't even understand the definition of grace. Grace is God's kindness to those who deserve only punishment. It's his free gift of forgiveness and acceptance in the Son, in Jesus, and you're forgiven for it. God is the God of the do-over. It's my favorite rule we had. I played in the streets a lot as a kid. I grew up in kind of an urban area, so we, we didn't have a lot of parks, and we usually played in the streets, riding our bikes, and then we'd just play full-out baseball games. We had to pay for several windows we broke through the years, but we, we would play stickball and, and baseball in the streets and, and kickball and football, but cars would come all the time, right? And so 
if you weren't ready or a car was coming or something was in the way, we'd always say, do over. Do you guys have that kind of rule? Do over. I love do overs. And God is the God of the do over. There's a woman named Karen Purvis who works with kids who come from really traumatic backgrounds. In one of her lines, that's just a beautiful line, when a kid's losing it and a kid's angry and screaming and cussing people out, you know what she'll say? Let's try that again, this time with respect. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, let's try that again, this time with respect. She doesn't just bring the hammer. She gives a chance to get it right. Let's try that again with respect. And that's what God's saying. Turn from your sin. Turn to him is what he's calling. Repent. Let's try that again with respect. He's the God of the do-over. When Jesus comes in Mark 1, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news that God is offering salvation through his son. And here's what's amazing. If you go to Matthew chapter 12, just flip over to the gospel of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, check this out. This is just amazing. Look at Matthew 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38, you ready? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Come on, perform, do something impressive. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Ah, oh, there's our guy. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, this amazing story we're hearing this weekend is just preparation for the fulfillment of God's saving work. It's getting us ready. It's getting practice in our thinking and in our hearts for the actual fulfillment of the message of salvation that comes in Jesus. And the message that comes in Jesus is that we have forgiveness offered to us if we return to our sin and trust Christ in saving faith. Last passage we'll look at. Just go to Ephesians 2 here. Just flip over through all the Gospels. Go through the Gospels. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. You go through Acts. You go through Romans. You go through 1st 2nd Corinthians, right? And then you land on these epistles here, right? Listen, listen to Ephesians chapter 2. You ready? Listen. Here's the, the, the place we're all in. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice it says dead. It doesn't say uh, knocked out, unconscious, tied up, needing more education, needing better parents, anesthetized. No, you're dead. You can't solve your problem of being dead in the trespasses and sins of what you once walked. This is all of us, just like the first night on, uh, on Friday, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, you didn't need to learn it, it's how you boot it up as a human being who had inherited a sin nature, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's about as bad as it can get. Thank God, though, for verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the message of the gospel. We were helpless and hopeless and going to die in our sin, but God moved in and offers salvation and forgiveness. Listen to one preacher talking about the gospel. There's no sweeter message of hope in all the world than to hear God announce that when you get up in the morning miserable and depressed, with a sense of guilt and estrangement before a holy God, you can go to bed that very night, this very night, with a quiet, peaceful heart, knowing that every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit is forgiven. And you're reconciled to the Almighty by the death of His Son. That's the free offer of the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, that's what it means. It means that we in our sin are all equally in need of a Savior. We all equally need forgiveness. We all equally have disobeyed, and we needed Jesus to come and represent us as the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, and live a perfect life of righteousness, overcoming temptation every step of the way, and die a perfect sacrificial death on a cross in our place, and then rise from the dead and conquer sin and death and hell once and for all in our place. That's the gospel. And don't despise the simplicity of how you become a forgiven, righteous child of God in the sight of God. It's by turning from your sin and trusting Jesus. It's not about attaining some level of morality or ethical perfection. Jesus has done that for you. It's not paying for your sins by beating yourself up and walking around in shame. Jesus took that curse and that shame on himself for you. Jesus although he had never sinned, was considered a sinner by God for us in our place. That's the gospel, Jesus in our place. That's what it means to be a Christian, to understand that Jesus has done everything we needed for him to do, everything. And by faith, you are able to be a child of God. By faith, you are able to have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places given to you. With nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn, nothing left to demonstrate. It's a free gift of God. It's truly grace and mercy. It's the best news in the world. You cannot and need not add anything to the sufficiency of Christ. He's done it all. That's why Martin Luther said, I, because of my union with Christ, can say all that Christ is, all that Christ did is mine. 
And just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his bride's, and the bride possesses all that is her groom's, so Christ and the church are one, and everything he is is now who we are, and we're invited into fellowship with God himself. It's not even just forgiveness. It's invitation into the fellowship that Father, Son, and Spirit had for all of eternity, the kind of table fellowship we can enjoy that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper when the church gathers in that way. And it's by simple turning from sin and trusting Jesus and saving faith. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's not complicated. It's, it's, It's in some ways as simple as it can be. We think, well, no, no, it's got to be more than that. I've got to work it off. I've got to prove it. I've got to earn it. I've got to do some great gesture to earn God's approval and forgiveness. That's not the God of the Bible. That's actually the God of every other religion besides Christianity. You know, every other religion is what we do for God to earn his favor. Christianity is what God has done for us to win our favor on our behalf. It's radically different. It's the difference between what we have to do and what God has done in Christ. The sufficiency of Christ is the most glorious truth you'll ever come to understand. And when you understand that Jesus really took your place, it's the most freeing thing you'll ever find in your life. It'll free you from the kind of of bondage that we walk in otherwise. You know, we tend to swing between gross insecurity and gross arrogance, and we're just these bundles of arrogance and insecurity coming back and forth all the time. And when you can know who you are in Christ, forgiven and justified and adopted into his family, you don't have to earn it anymore. You can walk before almighty, holy God, free and forgiven and adopted as his child. I don't want anyone to leave here tonight not knowing the forgiveness and the adoption and the identity in Christ you're able to have by repentance and faith. The Bible says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. We can put up walls and defensiveness saying, I don't know if I want to give up these things in my life. I'm not sure what this is going to mean. And that's what it means to start this relationship. You're not sure what it's going to mean in the details. But you can know that in the most foundational things, it's the most glorious reality and identity you could ever have. Identity in Jesus. The perfect, beautiful Savior of the world. And he saves the world with his death. But until you trust him in saving faith, he doesn't save you. And so I implore you tonight, I want my message to be more heartfelt than Jonah's was. I hope it has been. Don't harden your heart if you're hearing his voice. You know, I want to give anyone an opportunity who came here this weekend. Maybe you've been a, a religious person, you've gone to church, but you've come to realize, you know, I think this is my mom's faith that I've kind of inherited. I don't think it's mine. I know right answers and I know right words. Maybe, maybe you're a nice Christian kid, but you're not actually in a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you came here knowing you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You just came for, to be with a friend or to be nice. I don't know. I don't know where your hearts are tonight, but God does. And I don't want to leave here tonight without giving you an opportunity to trust Jesus. And it's as simple as turning from sin and saying, I trust Jesus now to be my Savior and the Lord of my life for the rest of my life. That's what it means. 
And if that's what you want to do tonight for the very first time, not, not, not if you're confident that you're a Christian, that you really have a relationship with God and, and this is the center of your life, but if, if you're tonight saying, no, I, I'm not convinced of that. I think I'm just a religious person. Or, or I, I know I'm a sinful person. And I've never really experienced forgiveness from him. If that's you tonight, for the very first time, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Okay. If you are a Christian and you're wandering, if you are a Christian and, and you're convinced of that, but you know you're not walking down the path that God would have for you, you, you got some Jonah in you, Knowing he's God, knowing Jesus died for you, but you really have been wanting to do life your own way. If you want to get back on that path and come on home, this is a great night to do that too. And if that's you tonight, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Beautiful. Ah, thank you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these dear, young men and women who've raised their hands to indicate that they want to walk with you. They don't want to run anymore. They don't want to wander and drift anymore. They don't want to walk with you in faithfulness and obedience and healthy, holy fear and the life-giving intimacy that brings with you, their God and Savior. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful faces I just looked at who had hands raised. And I pray, Lord, that you would fortify them, strengthen them, embolden them to walk with you faithfully knowing that's the only way they'll find life lasting and enduring and abundant lord bring good friends alongside thank you that they're here and there are obviously people in their lives who love them and are investing in them i pray lord now that as attacks will no doubt come with this renewed sense of wanting to walk with you, that you'd protect them and strengthen them and give them courage to walk with you no matter what. Lord, bless us all. Bless us tonight to know that you're here with us and you're for us and you're working for our good and you love to forgive and you love extravagantly and graciously. And you're a good God and you're patient. Thank you for your patience, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.